0: I felt like I need to get up here before somebody calls for an encore. And then I don't get to preach. Well, good morning, everyone. Especially want to welcome those who you, of you who are visiting, as Austin welcomed you. And if you are visiting with us, um, and, or if you forgot a Bible this morning, our ushers are going to come. We have plenty of extra Bibles, and we invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. We believe the Bible is God's Word, and... We recognize that some of you that are new or visiting, you may have come from a church or maybe unchurch background where you 're like i don 't I, I never really read the Bible or i didn 't know the Bible could be understood or well, the Bible has a lot of things that are different from what i 've been taught, so we frequently will ask you to join us in studying the Bible as i 've often said it doesn 't matter what color your Bible is as long as it 's read r e a d during the week so Don't just read the Bible for this few moments on Sunday morning, but go home and and study it and think about what we're talking about here. Now, we're talking about what the Bible calls the gospel. And a lot of people will hear that term gospel music or the gospel. They don't know really what it is, but the gospel is a a message about Jesus Christ, God's son, who came to earth to die for sinners. And in in a quick summary, I thought the other day, the gospel could be summed up using the word over. There was a hostile takeover. The book of Romans talks about how sin permeated the world through Satan and through us. And so we were created by God to serve and glorify him, but we stopped doing that. And this hostile takeover brought great destruction to the earth and death and corruption. But Jesus Christ endured, in a sense, he got run over. He he, he took the wrath of God instead of us. So the Bible says God so loved the world that he sent his son to die because of our sins, to pay the penalty for us rebels who, who were part of that hostile takeover. But then because Jesus Christ was run over and then rose from the dead, we can now receive an extreme makeover, because when you become a born-again Christian, God changes your heart. He forgives all of your sins, and, and because of that, you get a, a fresh new beginning where you learn to live for, for the Lord the way we were meant to, and in essence... That becomes what I call an extreme makeover, because once the Lord changes your heart, then you start changing from the inside, changing the way you think, and, and gradually it's going to show up in the way you live your life. So we're actually in that last section of the book called the application section of Romans, chapters 12 through 16, because that's where Paul talks about living the Christian life, and what we've seen so far, and all of the messages are available online, if if you're just starting with this, you can go back and read Romans and, and catch up. You can kind of watch the, the Netflix or, or kind of do an all-day Roman study. But the idea would be um, don't start with Christian living. If you're not a Christian, there's no point learning how to live as a Christian until you learn how to receive the gift of salvation, be forgiven, and then, okay, now, once you're Christian, the first thing we saw is we're, we're to, to, to give ourselves wholly to God, to surrender Holy to God, present your body a living sacrifice because of his mercy. But then, as I'm, as I'm learning and growing and being transformed by renewing my mind in scripture, then he says, give yourself to your church. And that's really important, because a lot of Christians today are kind of solo sport Christians, like independent. And so, as soon as God says to, to surrender to God, he says, discover your gifts and use them and get into community, and we, we re- I really can't emphasize that enough. The Bible says, be devoted to one another, pray for one another, share with one another, encourage one another, and the, and the way to do that is not just to come to church on Sunday. You really have to get connected. God's been moving through the Spirit, and anytime a church begins to multiply, we better divide in a good sense of getting people into smaller groups. So, If all you do is come on Sunday morning, I want to encourage you to at least take the next step, which might be to meet one-on-one with somebody or to join a men's Bible study or a woman's Bible study or a small group. We have studies galore that meet just about every day of the week, but getting into another context where you're meeting with other Christians and growing and developing your, your Christian relationships. So... After saying that, Paul says, devote yourself to God. Then he says, devote yourself to a community of believers. Then he says, now, in regard to evil people and our enemies, remember we learned, don't take your own revenge. Be peacemakers. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He then transitioned. He said, now, as Christians in the community, how should we respond to the government? And he said, listen, God wants us to submit to the government. It was his idea. The government was was put there by God to protect us from evil people, and as Christians, we're supposed to be responsible citizens that, that make Christianity look good. We enhance the gospel. Last week, we saw that we also have this one debt to everyone, and that is to become a loving person. Paul says, this is how we fulfill the law, through love. And so, we talked last week, God's goal for us is to become a more loving person, not to just know the Bible, but to be transformed by the gospel to learn how to love people. But in this growing development of a loving person, he then taught us that we have to fight against the flesh, and we learned that there's still this principle within us that wants to disobey God, and as we walk in the Spirit, we don't have to give in to that. But the last thing we looked at last week was, but don't make provisions for the flesh. Don't, don't put yourself in situations or or remove certain things from your life that are making it easy for you to sin. Well, this morning, we're going to move to the last major section, chapters 14 and 15, where Paul's going to discuss something that's extremely important in Christian living, and that is maintaining unity with people who have different opinions. The, the concept of unity in the local church is incredibly important to Christ. Jesus is, is, is very much about Christians being one. He says, the world will know you're my disciples because you love one another. And there are different passages of the Bible that talk about unity in different contexts. Like Ephesians 4 says, be diligent to keep unity in the bond of peace. But this morning what we're talking about is having unity in relationships to our own opinions. And the reason that we have that is because when Christians come together, we're not a cozy club of like-minded people, right? We have different races, different classes, whether we say white-collar, blue-collar. We have people with different interests. We have people with different intellectual levels, different likes and dislikes, different political ideas. We have red and yellow, black and white, more or less. So what happens when people with different opinions come together, like is it possible that in our parking lot we could have one car with an Eagles bumper sticker parked next to one with a Cowboys bumper sticker? I mean, could that happen? Or could two people attend a Bible study and one has a Trump bumper sticker and one has a Hillary bumper sticker? Is that, is that possible? Can parents who homeschool their kids socialize with parents who, whose kids aren't homeschooled? And so what happens is we come to church, and we don't come as clean slates. We come with our opinions. So some Christians have decided, well, here's an easy way to do it. We'll just have different churches for everybody's opinion. We have our messianic assembly because we, we believe this. We have um, uh, this culture, this race. You know, we have black churches, white churches, Spanish churches. Or how about this? We'll just make the church a, a smorgasbord, and you can order your buffet. So do you like contemporary music? We'll come to this service, and we'll rock it out, right? But, if, but, but, but then we'll, we'll, we'll serve, for those of you who just like the hymns, you know, we'll serve you a, a, a delicious... Ma- I, I'm not sure I see that in Scripture. I see, I see the Bible teaching us that we have to learn how to live together with people who have different opinions. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you consider yourself opinionated? You go, yeah, but not like opinionated people, right? Because, I mean, think about this. We're all opinionated. Everybody's opinionated. You just have opinions. Some people are very vocal about them and lack filter or lack social awareness that others have different opinions. So it depends on what we're talking about here. But when it comes to Christianity, in some areas it's okay to have differing opinions. In some areas it's disastrous. So let me start with this. When it comes to the major doctrines of the Christian faith, there isn't room for various opinions. In other words, you can't say, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the Trinity. Or I'm a Christian, but I don't believe Jesus is the only way to God. You see, the the, the heart and soul of Christianity is there are a set of doctrinal beliefs that are substantiated in Scripture and they're clear, the Bible is the word of God, absolute authority, Jesus is Lord, Jesus died and rose, Jesus is the only way to God. There's a real heaven, a real hell. There's only one view of marriage in the Bible, male and female, for life. So everybody wants to jump into the Christian club, but they don't necessarily embrace the core values of Christianity. So when it comes to the major doctrines, it's essential that, we, that we're unified in our beliefs. In fact, that's part of the goal of a church. Paul says, I want you to come to a unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Christians who know what they believe, right? But there are minor doctrines like the doctrine of spiritual gifts. Some people believe that some gifts are for today. Some believe that All are for today. Some have ceased. Some have not. Some people believe that there's going to be a rapture before the second coming, and there will be a a period of tribulation. Some Christians don't hold that. Some Christians baptize their infants, but they don't do that to get them into heaven. They see a a connection between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism. So there's, there's room for different opinions on minor doctrines of Christianity, but Interestingly, what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at things that the Bible don't, doesn't address when it comes to moral norms and absolutes. Now, some people call these gray areas. Okay, there's no verse in the Bible about whether I can or cannot dance. There's no verse in the Bible that says you can go to this movie, but not this type of movie. There's no verse in the Bible that says you, you can listen to, to this music, but not this music, or Some would disagree with that. There's no verse in the Bible that says you can have a drink of alcohol or you can't have a drink of alcohol. So there's a lot of gray areas that Christians hold different opinions on, okay? Now, what Paul is doing is he's aware that there's an issue in the church that he has to address. Now, what we're going to do is whenever you're learning to interpret the Bible, you always want to go, what did it mean to them first? And then how do we as Christians apply it to us today? So the starting point is we want to talk about the historical background. What was going on here in the Roman church? Well, they had different opinions about three subjects, meat, wine, and probably the Sabbath day. And I'll, and I'll explain that in just a moment. In this passage, Paul's going to say some people believe you can eat meat. Other people believe you can just eat vegetables. And you're like, yeah, we just call them vegans. Yeah, but this isn't about just health benefits. These are moral norms. In other words, some people are going, if you eat meat, it's wrong. You go, people would do that? Sure. Just like people go, if you drink alcohol, it's wrong. If you dance, that's wrong. So that was one issue. Now, the meat here in Romans 14, it's hard to know what he's talking about because in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, there's a similar passage, but it's not the same. The meat in 1 Corinthians 8 was meat that was sacrificed to idols. And some Christians were going, it doesn't matter, it's just a piece of meat. And other Christians are going, no, no, no. You you can't eat it if it was sacrificed to idols. But in this passage, I'm going to suspect here that Paul's probably talking about what Christians were debating about in terms of what is regarded as clean food. Remember that in the Old Testament, God had asked his people, the Jewish people, to identify themselves by some distinguishing differences, some stamps, sort of their badge to say, this is what it means to be a follower of, of the God of the Bible, the, the true and living God. Keep the Sabbath. And don't eat unclean foods. And that sort of became a real important thing. So now that, that Jews and Christians are coming together into the fellowship, there are, there are some people going, well, we all have to keep the Sabbath. Or 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 we can't eat these unclean foods. And what, what happens when Christians come together with with different opinions? There are so many things in the Bible or in life that, that we don't know. The Bible doesn't say how you should educate your children, right? Is it is it a sin to send your kids to public school? Some people are like, oh that's a terrible idea. You shouldn't do that, right? Others would say, hey, that's that's a that's a gray area. Is it okay to smoke? Are you kidding me? Smoking's of the devil. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going, well, is that really what Paul had in mind there? Yeah, it's bad for you. It certainly doesn't help your lungs. But if we're going to say that's the principle, some of you need to change the way you eat, the way you sleep. There's a lot of things we do that are bad for us, right? So what we're going to see today, and this isn't the whole passage, but in verses 1 through 12, we're going to talk about several things. First of all, we need to learn... To have tolerant attitudes, accepting and welcoming attitudes towards people who share a different opinion from us. We've got to learn how to play nicely together. Secondly, we're going to learn that we need to formulate our own convictions before God. And then third, we need to be reminded that one day we're going to stand before God and we have to give a personal account for our own convictions and decisions. So let's pray and then we'll look at our passage. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, and as Christians, we want to grow together, and I pray that the Spirit will speak to us as we go through this passage, so that as a community, we will mature, and that we will respond biblically to differing opinions on gray areas, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. And let me just say again, these these non-absolute, non-clear scriptural things, we're going to call them gray areas. Okay, so don't come to me and say, oh, you know, I live with my girlfriend, or I get high, or I like to get drunk, and I lie, but, you know, that's just my opinion. Because that's not a gray area. The Bible says you shall not lie. No drunkard shall inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fornicate. Okay, but but once we come to these gray areas, God gives us sort of the test case in that time, and then we're going to look at how we apply it today. But let's look at verse 1. So Paul says, now... Accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Now, the word accept here is interesting. It literally means to welcome. And, and that's going to kind of be the theme of this whole section. He comes back to it in chapter 15 when he sort of sums up in verse 7. He goes, wherefore, accept one another. Okay? So when someone holds a different, say, a political view, you're like, I talked to a guy yesterday, he said, I saw someone with a Hillary bumper sticker, and they were out of light. So I, I went up to them and said, I just want to see somebody stupid enough to marry Hillary. Now, this wasn't a Christian, or not married to vote for Hillary. It wasn't a Christian, but just one of those people who's very free with their opinions, right? So what does it mean to accept or welcome one another? Well, who are we talking about? Notice Paul says one who is weak in faith. So in the context here, this is not talking about someone who's not sure if they're saved. Okay, this is not talking about weak in their saving faith. Okay, because we know that the only way to have a relationship with God is is through faith. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. So if you're still, still seeking, you say, I've never seen him. Well, that's part of the point. Jesus said, blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. Bible said Christ died for you and rose again. If you repent and believe in him, you'll be saved. So you have to believe that. That's what Christ is calling us to do. But, but once I put my faith in Christ as my Lord and Savior, when Paul talks about weakened faith here, he's talking about something very different. Not deficient in their saving faith, but deficient in their understanding of Christian liberty. In other words, their faith had not yet permeated their past. They had not yet understood that once you're justified by God's grace through faith, that if the Bible doesn't address it, it's sort of neutral or indifferent. So Paul calls those people weak in faith. Now, the interesting thing is, we, as we think about them, people like that would not consider themselves weak in faith, would they? Would they not consider themselves the strong one? We don't dance. We don't drink alcohol. We don't have anything to do with R-rated movies. We, and again, you, you can say, oh, R-rated movies are sinful. So the interesting thing is that Paul calls the person who we might say is legalistic, weak in faith. But you have to see where they're coming from. They don't feel that way. And I think it was um, Karl Barth who once said, let's recognize that weak people have made great contributions to Christianity because often people who are weak in their convictions are very passionate though, right? And and they've made great contributions to the Christian faith. So, Paul says, accept this person who has these restricted opinions because he has not yet grown in his maturity of Christian liberty, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. In other words, don't welcome him only to straighten him out. So then he gives an example in verse 2. One man has faith that he may eat all things. Literally, it says he believes. Now, what what it means is he believes that it's acceptable to God. It doesn't bother his conscience. But then he says one man believes that he should only eat vegetables because he believes that that's how you're acceptable to God. Not for salvation, but how to please him. And is that okay? If someone says, "Well, well, I think you shouldn't do this. So Paul says, all right, I want you two to face each other. And, and some of you, you, you get this because you say, I used to go to a church where we taught everybody you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. I mean, I'm embarrassed. I used to belong to a church that they taught it was sinful to play cards. So I had to sign a pledge that says, well, we won't play cards, right? And then trying to explain to all my unbelieving family members why we couldn't play cards anymore, right? But you got to turn to one another and say, all right, I can can anticipate what these two attitudes are going to be. What's the attitude of the non-card player? He's going to judge that person. He's going to go, oh, I'm not even sure they're saved. I mean, how could you be a Christian and do that? And we call that being judgmental, okay? But the attitude of the person who understands Christian liberty can be just as bad, only in a different sense. It's this attitude of despising or condemning them and just going, oh, those self-righteous morons, they're, they're, they're idiots, right? So Paul takes this posture and he says, look, let not him who eats, the guy who understands liberty, regard with contempt him who does not eat. So if you see somebody has a different view on alcohol or dancing or educating their children or politics, don't look down on them and say, what an idiot. But rather, he says, accept him. But then on the other hand, he says, let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. I'll give you a personal example. When I was a new Christian, I went to this seminar where they said, all rock music is sin. It comes from the drumbeat. And anything with the drumbeats of the devil because it stirs up your flesh. Now, I'm taking this all in and going, yeah, yeah, that's right, because... Whenever I was out partying or listening to rock music, it was all, you know, it was just glorifying Satan. So, so the guy says, Go home and smash all your rock and roll records. And some of you are going, Yeah, I did that, right? And I smashed all my rock and roll records, and I'm thinking, Oh, if it's Christian, it's not rock. There's not such so a thing as a Christian rock, right? So then I come to what was PCB, now Cairn University, and I, I, I see this other student, and he's, and he's listening to Led Zeppelin. And she's a stairway to heaven. And I'm going, I'm telling you the truth. I thought he wasn't saved. I'm going, I'll bet you that guy's not saved. See, I was judging him. And that's what this text is saying. Don't judge him. And here's why. Notice verse 3. For God has accepted him. See, if when I start despising people or judging people, I'm coming up there and trying to add to the Trinity going, we're going to have a quadrinity now. And I'm I'm on the bench with God going, they're wrong. Paul says, instead, don't judge him, and here's why. Because God has accepted him. Now, why does God accept anybody? Do you think God accepts you or me because we deserve it? If you grew up being taught that God will accept you when you clean up your life, that's wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. God accepts us because Christ died for us. God accepts us because Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished. God accepts us and he says, when you believe in Christ, there's no condemnation anymore. You're forgiven. You're accepted. You're my child. So then Paul says something really interesting. He says in verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another? Now, there's a couple different words for servant in the New Testament. The one the one word has to do with more being a bond slave, which is sort of the lowest of slaves. But this word is is one that means a household servant. And possibly here, Paul chose that word on purpose because a household servant would be a little bit more dear to his master, a little closer relationship. Now, now we see where Paul's gone with this. He's gone, imagine if I go to someone else's company and, and they're folding envelopes and I go to the boss. Hey, that's not how they're supposed to, don't fold envelopes like that. He'd be like, hey, these aren't your employees. Mind your beeswax. So when I look at another Christian and I'm judging him, God's going, oh, wait. He's my servant, my house servant. Okay, God, I follow you. And then he says this, who are you to judge this house servant? To his own master he stands or fall and stand He will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we need to ask a question here. What does Paul mean by stand or fall? Two possibilities. Standing or falling might just be something that can happen to a Christian where you stumble. Right? Where the Bible says pride comes before a fall. Or in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, if anyone, let's, let's be careful. If anyone thinks he stands, let him be careful lest he fall. So it's possible for a Christian to have a moral lapse, obviously, right, and to to move away from the Lord. But, But that's very different here from the second view, and that is that this standing or falling is permanent, okay? And I think that's probably what Paul has in mind here when he says... His own master, he stands or fall, and I think what he's doing here, he's alluding to something that he feels strongly about, and that is that if God has chosen and elected someone, that person will persevere in their faith. They will not fall away from Christ permanently. Let me explain what I mean by that. He says, he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. For Paul to speak with such certainty, he, he, he then, in my mind, wouldn't be talking about Well, some Christians may fall into sin. He's saying this. If a person is a true believer, you can be sure of this. He will will stand because God is able, willing, and has entrusted himself to that person. They will finish their Christian life. And you're like, how do you know that? Because that's all through the New Testament. That that was Paul's gospel, Philippians 1.6. He that began a good work in us will perform it until the day of Christ. Romans 8, everyone he predestined, he called, and those who he called, he justified, and everyone's glorified. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.8, he says, faithful is he who called you into fellowship with his son, and he will do it. Paul said to the Thessalonians, God himself will sanctify you entirely in your body, soul, and spirit. Faithful is he who called you, he will do it. So there's this theme that true believers will continue to persevere. And you go, well, how should I feel about that? I think you should feel good about that. <laughs> I think that's a blessing, that my salvation is not entirely dependent on me clinging to Jesus. I hope I hold on and don't fall away. Jesus said, Father, of all those you've given me, I've lost none of them. Jesus said to Peter, I prayed for you so your faith won't fail, and, and what's gonna keep us to the end is not our moral fortitude. It's the grace of God in the gospel of Christ because Christ has committed himself to us. Please say amen to that. That's a good thing. Now, that ought not to lead you to carelessness, though. You ought not to say, hey, you know what? Well, I can do anything I want because I'm saved. Because there is this doctrine of perseverance that warns us against a lack of discipline, a carelessness, like, hey, I, I got my hell insurance. That's, so, so I basically say it to people like this. If you're thinking about turning away from the Christian faith, don't. The book of Hebrews warns of the dangers of what happens to those who begin and turn back permanently. That's my view. And we also need to understand that those who do turn away from Christ permanently. It's not because they lost their salvation. It's because they weren't a believer. 1 John 2.19 says this. They went out from us, but they were never of us. If they were of us, they would have remained with us. So true believers are exhorting one another. Keep believing. Keep trusting. And know this, that God will keep you to the end. So, I go, okay. So I need to learn that when others have different opinions, if I'm, if I'm weak in my faith, stop judging them. If I'm stronger in my understanding of Christian liberty, don't despise them. Okay? So we're going to, that's something God wants us to work on. Number two, <clears throat> the next thing I need to do is I need to understand that God wants me to form my own convictions, not be dictated by what everybody else is doing. So look at verse 5. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Now, he's talking about Christians here. And I think what he's saying is some believers feel that you should set apart one day as the Lord's day. And you should not work on that day. And you should, you should just rest completely and, and entrust that day to the Lord in a special way. And Paul's like, that's great. But he said, other Christians believe every day is the Lord's day. And you're like, are you allowed to do that? So so look what he says. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Wait. So is it right or wrong? Yes. (laughs) Somebody came to me one day. I led this guy to the Lord. I went to his house on Sunday. He's raking leaves. He goes, Tom, I'm so glad you're here. Is it wrong for me to rake leaves on Sunday? Based on this passage, I didn't say to him, of course not. Because if in his conscience, he believed it was wrong, then he should abstain from it. We're going to come back to that next week where Paul says, happy is he who doesn't condemn himself in what he approves. So right now, you have to think in your own mind, what is your personal conviction about these areas that the Bible doesn't address? And, and it's kind of weird to think about, but just because somebody else does it, it might not be wrong for them, but it might be wrong for you. And vice versa. What might be wrong for you, think about it. You know, I'm not going to sweepingly say, everybody's sinning because they don't see it my way if the Bible doesn't address it. Now, can your convictions change? Well, I want you to think about that for a moment. Can you look back in your life and say, there were certain things that I was sure were black and white, right and wrong, that I've changed my opinion on? I would hope so. I would hope that you've matured in your understanding of Christian liberty. Now, if you go, yeah, I've changed my opinion on adultery, I'm coming off the stage, okay? (laughs) We know that's not a gray area, okay? But I would hope that some of you have matured in your Christian faith to the point of saying, like I did, I don't now look at people and go, if they listen to rock music, they're not saved, okay? So surely some of you came out of a church where you were given a very strict, or a background that was so strict, and, and as you've matured, you've realized, hey, these are, these are gray areas, these are So if, if all of you are going, not me, I've held, I had it all black and white from the beginning, and I hold to the end, and I'm like, okay, but I think you're maybe not understanding Christian liberty, okay? So, Right now, in your own mind, figure out what your view of drinking is. Okay? What's your view of dancing? You know, what's your view of cards or on and on? What's your view of politics? There's just so many things. What's your view about how we should dress in church? You know, give God your best. Have a tie on. Okay? Is, that, is that a moral? No, that's not a moral absolute. Okay? Now, the third thing that we're going to look at this morning, and then we'll draw out some applications, is God wants us to remember that one day we have to answer to the Lord for our opinions and our decisions. So Paul's going to sort of turn things a little bit. He's going to say, now listen, the key here is not to worry about whether this guy's keeping Sabbath or whether he's, whether he's eating this or that. The key is to remember that if he's a Christian, he's doing what he believes he's doing for the Lord, and I believe I'm doing what I'm doing for the Lord, and ultimately we're both going to stand before the Lord. So I'm thankful that one day I won't stand before you. Right? And you're probably thankful that one day you won't stand before me. In fact, Paul said to the Corinthians, To me, it's a very small thing what you think of me. What matters is what does the Lord think. So stop judging one another because the Lord will disclose our motives and the secrets of our heart. And this is what we're blown away when when we find out that someone isn't what we thought they were. Right? This, This passage cautions us. Hey, that's God's God's role. He's the judge. So let's read what he says. He says, verse 6, He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. So if somebody keeps Sabbath, they're doing it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. Now, does that imply if you don't eat meat, you're not thankful? No, keep reading. He says... He who does not eat, for the Lord he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. You're like, well, what does he mean by that? What he means by that is people who have different convictions, we both have the same goal, and that is we're trying to please God. You see, that's the very essence of what it means to be a Christian is I first understand that I'm accepted by God through the gospel, and now I'm learning to live my life for God, pleasing him. This doesn't make me a better Christian. This doesn't help him to love me more. I'm just learning that whatever I do, I'm supposed to do it for the Lord with thanksgiving. That's why he equates not eating with giving thanks, keeping the Sabbath with giving thanks. To be a Christian is to learn to glorify God in everything. In fact, it's very interesting that when Paul speaks of this similar topic in 1 Corinthians, he ends his discussion. He goes, whether then you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So that's really the issue, As I make choices about what I'm gonna do or not do, I have to ask, am I living for the Lord? Some of you are, you've already checked out right now, and you're ready for the big football matches afterward. Okay, well fine, that's great, nothing wrong with playing football, somebody might be, them sinners are playing football on Sunday, right? Forget about that, but, uh, but if you go out there and play football, you need to do it for the Lord. In fact, Paul said it this way in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. So so it's more of a lifestyle that says, my whole life is to be lived thanking the Lord. Not just for the good things. Every good gift comes from God. But Paul says, in everything give thanks. Even thanking him for difficulties. And, 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 If I'm watching a television show, could I welcome Jesus there? Can I do this for his glory? If I spend this on this thing, can I I comfortably say, hey, I know my money belongs to the Lord, and I I believe that this would please him. I don't think he's up there going, don't spend a dime on yourself, right? It's just saying, hey, I want to live pleasing to the Lord. So Paul says in verse 8, for not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. Now, people have pulled that out of context and say, see, no man is an island. And I go, yeah, that's true, but that's not what he means here. Because he's talking about Christians. And any Christian who ultimately does nothing but lives for themselves needs to consider if they're even a Christian. So he says this, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. What does he mean by that? So, so I have to look at my life once I become a Christian as now everything should be for the Lord. Even when and how I die. Calvin said something interesting on this. When you think about death and suffering, he says, if God lengthens my life in the midst of sorrow and weariness, I shouldn't seek to depart before my time. In other words, if you're suffering and having a really bad life, you first of all shouldn't take your life, but we really shouldn't even say, God, take my life now. I have a dear friend, Barb Buchanan. She just went home to be with the Lord. You're like, don't you mean you had her? No, I still have a dear friend. She's just with the Lord right now, but, but I, she... Her daughter called me about two weeks ago. She lives in Texas. I was her pastor years ago. She said, Pastor Tom, you're still my pastor. She said, I'm in so much pain. She had cancer. She said, pray for me. I said, do you want me to pray that the Lord will take you? She goes, no. She goes, just pray that I glorify the Lord. And I'm thinking, you're my pastor, Barb. I need you (laughs) pray for me, right? And I'm serious about that. This woman had a a precious view of life that it's not about me. And she actually did live much longer than we expected. For like seven days, they said. She's got 24 hours. Right? But she understood this. Like Paul said, whether I live or die, it's my earnest expectation that in nothing I'll be put to shame. But Christ will be exalted in my body. And I'm like, wow. But then Calvin said this. But also, should God suddenly call us in the prime of our life, we must be ready for departure. My life does not belong to me. And, and, and some of us are like, am I going to be Cassie Burnell? Are they going to put a gun to my head and ask me if I'll die for Jesus? What if ISIS comes over here and says, Christians, go over there? Don't worry about that. If you want to know whether you're willing to die for the Lord, just ask yourself this. Are you willing to live for the Lord? Because if you go, Jesus, I'm willing to live for you. You already settled the other one. If he goes, okay, you're going to live for me? And so I came up with this phrase, we should all live on standby. When you're at the airport, am I going to get on that flight or not? Don't know, but I should be on standby. So if the Lord calls me in, in the prime of my life, you're like, Tom, that's already over. No, it's not, right? <laughs> if the Lord calls us before we're, we, we think it is just right or right or our time, Calvin's right. We, we should recognize that, hey, we must be ready. But then he says something really profound, and and this is is what I think we we often miss in the Christian faith, that Jesus did not just die on the cross to give us a pardon from our sin. That's true, that's precious, that's justification. But he also died on the cross to free us from living for ourselves and to begin to teach us the rest of our lives to live for him. This is a profound verse. Look at verse nine. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. Why? Why? that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living. You're like, what do you mean by that? Well, there's a beautiful parallel to this in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says it this way. Jesus died for us that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. So I want to just throw out a disclaimer. If you're here this morning and you are totally living for the Lord and you never live for yourself, you can leave now. Make way back there, ushers. But for the rest of us, that's the gospel. I continue to rehearse the gospel. Oh, yeah, he died for me, that I would no longer live for myself. And you're like, Pastor, I don't go out and party and get drunk anymore. It's like, hey, wait a minute. There's a whole lot more to it, what it means to live for the glory of God and not for myself, even if a lot of it's just on the inside, right? Right? So Paul goes, after all, since since Jesus died for me to live for him, what am I worried about the guy over there, what he's doing? So he says in verse 10, so why do you judge your brother? Why do you guard him with with contempt? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul often toggles that phrase, God and Christ, back and forth. And at another time, we don't have time this morning, there is a judgment for Christians called the judgment seat of Christ in which we're not evaluated for our eternal destiny, but we're evaluated for the way we live our lives. And we're rewarded. Okay? And so knowing that I'm going to stand before Christ, some of you, when you see that, that verse terrifies you. I'm going to stand before God's judgment? Yes. If that verse terrifies you, first of all, ask yourself, do you understand the gospel? Are you a Christian? Because on the one hand, the only way you're going to get into heaven at the judgment seat is not because you're good enough. It's because Christ died for you. So you don't have to be terrified of God's condemnation if you have fled to Christ. Lay hold of Jesus. And when God, if he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? Go because of him. Because Christ died for me. Because you promised in the Bible there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You promised in Romans 5.9 that being justified by the blood of Jesus, I will be saved from the wrath of God through him. So cling to the beautiful cross. That's why you don't need to be terrified of God. That's, that's how people get saved. I, I, oh, wow. Amazing grace It saved a wretch like me. I was blind. I didn't get it. But, but now I see. Jesus paid for me. I don't have to go to purgatory I don't have to fear his wrath. He said, It is finished, and God loves me and accepts me through Christ. Would you please? I'm begging for amen for that. Amen. Does that not make you glad? But we still all give an account of our lives to God after that for rewards. So Paul says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And then look at verse 12. And every tongue, now literally in, 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 in the Greek text here it says every tongue shall confess or give a confession to God. What does that mean? Every knee one day will bow. Well, first of all, think about this. Remember when you told your little angry son to sit down? He goes, <clears throat> "I'm not sitting down. And then if you slam them down, he goes, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. There was a rebellion, right? Well, this is the way most people live. They're in rebellion against God. Now, that doesn't mean they're out shooting heroin. They just don't want God telling them what to do. It's not his business. I like my life. I want to do it my way. When you come to Christ, there's this innate sense in which if he died for me to save me from my sins, then I'm bowing my knee to him. Not because I'm going to clean up my life, but I'm coming to him. The Bible says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the essence of becoming a Christian is to do that now, not after you die. It's too late then. You can be indifferent and neglect Christ your whole life and then die, and he's not going to say, I'll give you one more chance. So we saw back in Romans 10, if you confess with your, your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart, you'll be saved. And I plead with you to consider that. Do do you confess Christ? Have you bowed to him and trusted him? And now you're a Christ follower? Then if you believe that and you're ready, then you're saved. And if you're not, I can only say this. You're crazy to spend one more day risking it. Because if you die and you're not saved, you don't get another chance. So come to Christ and believe. Believe. But most of you are going, okay, Pastor, I already did that. Okay, now think about the fact that since you've been saved, there's a lot of areas where you you might have to pardon this tired illustration I always use, but recalculating. Like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Everything I do, I'm supposed to live for the Lord. So when we put the food on the table, I don't go, put it down and say grace. Like, what does that mean, put it down and say grace? We're, We're giving thanks to God. Dogs just jump on their food. Christians go, God, thank you for this food. But Christians don't even go, God, thank you for this good stuff. We're learning to go, God, thank you for everything. Now now you're meddling. Because I haven't figured that out yet. That's hard. I'm afraid of that. I don't sing songs like, you give and take away, God, my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. I sing, I pray my heart will say, blessed be your name. But, but we turn, and we trust, and we're learning to follow, and, and we go, all right, this brother has a different view on schooling or drinking or whatever, and so let's accept and tolerate one another, and let's pray for one another who have different viewpoints on minor doctrines or, or different gray areas, and then I want to evaluate my lifestyle choices and ask myself, am I living for the glory of God? Am I thanking God in everything I'm doing? And, 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 and I, I can hear what's going on in your mind. You're going, oh, pastor, you're getting me. And I'm going, me too. I'm not up here going, ever since I was like you people. I, I Yeah, I need to hear this too. But this is how we grow as a Christian community. And this is what it means to make disciples. It's that we're learning that a disciple lives everything freely for Christ. And all of, of my life is, is to be pleasing to him. And, and we're in process and we're learning. So we're going to close by singing a song. That reminds us of some of these great truths, but I want us to bow in prayer as Benjamin comes and then he's going to lead us in a song, and I want you to sing with your soul as as we respond to God, to the goodness of the Lord, to the gospel. Let's bow together. If you're here this morning and God's spoken to your heart and awakened you and you want to be saved, you're like, hey, I get it now. I believe that Jesus died to forgive me. Right there in your seat, the best you know how, say to the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I now come to you as a sinner. I believe that I've lived for myself. Would you forgive me of that? Change my heart. Teach me how to live for you. Forgive me freely by your grace because you died for me. And if you're ready to live for the Lord as a forgiven sinner then the Bible says you should confess that with your mouth. So someone that you came with today, let them know that or see me at the door. There's a there's a booklet I want to give you called What is the Gospel? I want to encourage you to grow in the Lord. You tender souls who are fearful of God's wrath, cling to Jesus this morning. Hear him say, "Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more." Rejoice in your forgiveness. And Father, I pray for our flock that together we will learn husbands and wives, men and women, boys and girls, to accept and welcome those who have different opinions. And may we stop judging one another. Forgive us, Lord. And may people come here from various backgrounds and feel loved. And as our church grows, may the Holy Spirit move in our hearts and connect us to community and help us to continue to advance the gospel and disciple our children and live lives of love. Father, thank you that we can sing to you in response to your word. May the Holy Spirit fill us this morning. And may you be pleased as we depart today. May your blessing be upon your people for the glory of God in Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Benjamin.